Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey guys, I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor, Crypto.com. Crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow. Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange. And to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash CryptoDelphi now or click the link in the show notes. Now back to our show. Hey everyone, it's Tom Shaughnessy back with Chain Reaction, and I have Cooper Turlion, who's a close friend. He's the editor of DeFi Rate, writes for Defiant. He is a god of agriculture and yield farming. How's it going, Cooper? What's up, Tom? Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, man. I, you gotta you gotta get out of the farm sometime. You gotta come back and do some podcasts. I know, right? It's a tough time trying to get away from these screens. Just hopping from one farm to a video call. It's a pretty good life. <laughs> well, it's Friday in crypto, which is meaningless because we all work all weekend, right? Absolutely. No days off. So Cooper, let's dive right in, man. You've been like on the front lines covering a lot of yield farming stuff like days or weeks before people know about it. And for those who don't think that might be a long time, just remember that these things launch like within 24 hours. So it's a huge margin. What exactly is yield farming? Yeah, I think the simplest way to think about it is putting your capital to work to earn a return. You know, it could be anything from depositing on compound to providing liquidity on balancer to some of these more niche things where you're basically staking a staked token and doing all sorts of DeFi IQ tricks to basically beat anyone else to the punch of earning yield, uh, either in the form of interest or in the form of some weird obscure token, which is kind of what we're seeing now. Got it. And where did this all start? Like, does it? Do we go back to compound with this? Do we go back to synthetics with this? Do we go back to like the real world with this? Where exactly did this all like happen? I think for me, synthetics was probably the most obvious one. It was the first yield farming opportunity that I participated in. So for some context, there, synthetics had this program for a while to incentivize SE to ETH liquidity, and what they were doing is basically giving people SNX rewards for providing liquidity to this Uniswap pool. Um, From there, it sort of blossomed into a wider thing where governance tokens were given away for providing capital to some value-added action. But I think that, you know, from my personal experience, that Synthetics Rewards program was the very first one that I personally participated in. That's pretty cool. I mean, at the time for Synthetics, it was pretty novel, right? Absolutely. And I think it was just a testament to how early it was. You know, I think that uh, Garth on their team was doing everything manually, you know, power to him and bless his heart. But there was definitely no um, automated flow. You know, today, I think people are using synthetic smart contracts for liquidity mining as sort of the, the standard. But to get to that point, there was definitely a lot of back and forth on what actually worked. How do you track capital? How do you avoid bad actors? And I'm really happy with the way that it's progressing. I think that a lot of this is happening automatically now. We're trying to reduce sort of the human error that can come from it. And that's a really positive trend in my mind. Yeah, that's cool, man. And I want to dig into a couple examples, but I want to like 
go back to the high level for a second, right? So like if I talk to my traditional friends on Wall Street, and I explain yield farming to them, they're like, all right, you're rehypothecating assets or you're just moving them around and you know it's financial engineering. If I talk to crypto people, they say, hey, we're reimagining you know, community-owned governance and we're giving people fair distributions of assets and, and things they can own and you know, creating new ways to incentivize people. Which way do you lean? Like, do you think that it's all a sham or do you think that we're actually create like do you actually think yield farming is a like a really cool new innovative thing i think we're getting there i think that we've entered some dangerous territories where it is uh quite honestly a sham for a lot of it you know especially in recent weeks with all these food coins that are going on i'm not super a big proponent of that being a positive for the industry but i really love this notion of token distribution to most value-added users you know i'm hopeful that we can sort of find ways that token distributions can benefit the early adopters and hopefully that can be um not just capital intensive to the point where someone who's providing value-added work, either on the curation or on the security side of things, can sort of capture upside that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. Yeah, that's fair, man. It's uh, What's like the biggest on your radar right now? Like, Are you more focused on like the earlier stage, like pro- yield farm projects like base and stuff like that? Or are you more focused on kind of the, the more foundational ones like comp and Wi-Fi and, and potentially synthetics? Or, or how do you kind of like draw the line between like the larger plays and the smaller plays? Yeah, so I definitely degen out a little bit. You know, the base DMs in the world are fun to sort of participate in on the early stages, but it's something that I've quickly recognized. You lose a lot of sleep over. And for all the sort of hype it gets, I think uh, mentally, you know, it's not the most stable thing to be doing. So I've actually been trying to turn my attention more towards projects that have a really solid community and governance foundation. You know, obviously token price is a metric of that. But I think that something like Nexus Mutual is a great example where, Governance has been happening for a long time. Pooled staking more or less is a form of yield farming. And you're sort of doing something that actually benefits not only the project, but sort of the wider ecosystem. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, no, I'm with you there, man. It's it's crazy. Like a lot of these projects that have yield farming, like don't actually have a real product, right? Like you're in finance. Yield farming and Wi-Fi, is like, the product. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair, man. It, it is. Do you, do you feel like a lot of these projects like, will have to add on a product or a service eventually? Or do you think that they won't? Like, Because when I look at something like Based or Yams or something, like I really don't see like an innovative product there. But when I look at something like you're in finance, like, I see an actual product there. Like, I mean, they started with automating yield farming for stablecoins, and they've quickly expanded to insurance and other things. Yeah, I think that um, Yarn is a really good example there. Because as you alluded to, it's literally predicated on the, the fact of yield farming, but sort of abstracting yield farming to make it more accessible for the average user and sort of sharing those returns with users is a really compelling argument. I do think to your point, you know, just having a fair distribution, quote unquote, as your entire value prop is really short-sighted. You know, it's a fun little roulette for, let's say, like seven days or something. But um, I don't know, I'm hopeful that something like Yam, you know, they saw that they could get a lot of traction and their idea of sort of having a, a baked-in treasury where the project can become sustainable as it sort of grows in usage. That's a really novel idea. And I'm actually okay with... Um, you know, teams not necessarily having governance figured out, basically just sort of lofting something out there and seeing what people rally around. I think that's a pretty novel concept, but there definitely is a, a lot of people taking that for granted and just assuming that's going to happen every time. When in reality, something like EM and sort of the coordination we saw around that is an extreme long shot and nothing that I expect to be uh, a norm by any means. Yeah, that's that's totally fair, man. And I guess, are you seeing people continue their involvement in yield farming or do you think that it's kind of like, getting to like the end point. I feel like people are starting to say, 
you know, hey, like we don't just want to see a yam copy or something like that. We actually want to see like, you know, some real things here. That's where I'm at personally. But, you know, when I look at people on Twitter, I think that bouncing from farm to farm is incredibly lucrative. You know, you could even make the argument that it's more lucrative than investing in different altcoins. So I don't know. I feel like if you have the capital and sort of mental attention to really be checking your farms literally multiple times a day and always rotating between different opportunities, you know, it's a really interesting window where there's a lot of money to be made. I just don't think that for me personally or anyone that um, has wider ambitions for the space, you know, it's not something that we're looking to make uh, yield farming into like the reason why DeFi goes mainstream. This doesn't seem like the right thing to me. Yeah, I, I guess it's hard. I mean, do you think that yield farming is going to actually like displace traditional financial services companies? Like, I know they're not there yet, but the products that they're building into these projects could actually have the potential to potentially do that, right? Yeah, I mean, the idea of trying to boost up a savings account by taking advantage of what's going on elsewhere in the ecosystem makes a lot of sense, right? We're seeing like Binance try and get into DeFi savings, quote unquote, now by using Compound. And there's definitely elements of uh, yield farming which aren't palatable. I think that it's just that risk spectrum, right? Of like how far are companies willing to go with other people's money? And to me, at least, yield farming right now is really just catered towards literally the DGen that has all their assets in MetaMask and is willing to just like YOLO every day, as opposed to someone that's, you know, <laughs> trying to be really risk averse and sort of save for their retirement and not make 100x in 24 hours. Yeah, I guess the thing I'm struggling with is like, I feel like yield farming is pointing a little inward for crypto, right? Like we're focusing mm-hmm. more on people that already understand crypto versus trying to get people involved that really don't understand it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that it's a good time to be experimenting. And I do like you know, we're actually using composability to to what it's meant to be. I don't think that yield farming would be possible if we didn't have these this infrastructure in place to be able to do it in the first place. But I totally hear you that we've sort of, we've lost sight a little bit of trying to touch into new audiences because everyone's just so happy with cycling their own assets and cycling all the money that's currently in DeFi rather than trying to figure out how to uh, take that to a wider audience and get new people involved. Yeah, I'm with you there, man. So what's newest on your radar? Like, are you focused on existing yield farming projects that we're kind of all aware of, or are you kind of looking at some new ones? And I'd love to hear kind of some examples of what you're spending most of your time on. Yeah. So um, liquidity mining is obviously something that I'm really passionate about. More specifically, how do you do a fair distribution and sort of encourage people to do governance? We're working with a couple early stage teams to figure out what better liquidity mining is. You know, when you look at something like Curve, token goes to $50 and then just dumps in perpetuity for the next two weeks. We kind of saw the same thing with Compound. And really just trying to figure out how a legitimate project that has audits and has an actual product to build can use sort of these yield farming incentives in a way that bootstraps their product without just completely dismissing the point of the protocol and trying to make that uh, conversation around yield farming a little bit more grounded or sane. Yeah, I'm with you there, man. It's it's fun and interesting. I guess the the hard part I'm trying to think about is eventually yield farming is going to slow down, right? And Mm -hmm. we will hit another bear market or crypto winter. And I'm trying to figure out if people are really going to do like a flight to safety and go to larger projects like, you know, Compound and Aave and others, or if they're just going to straight up leave DeFi and go to Bitcoin, Ethereum, or just get out completely. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think on my end, it's really about what those value capture mechanisms are once the token has actually been distributed. You know, as we alluded to earlier, Liquidity mining sort of is the value prop for a lot of these early stage projects. And it's about once people actually earn those tokens, you know, what are you doing to keep them in your ecosystem? If you don't have a strong enough argument for why someone should stick around and stake tokens or just like really just keep them in the ecosystem, they're gonna they're gonna dump. And we've seen this time and time again that 
right now the move for any serious yield farmer is just get the tokens as early as possible, sell them at the top, and just keep recycling. You know, there's no incentive to hold these tokens. And I think that anyone that's trying to suggest that they're holding their yield farm tokens because they believe in the long term of these projects is uh, a little bit short-sighted. Yeah, I'm with you there, man. That's that's fair. And what are your thoughts on, let's go into a couple of projects here. What are your thoughts on Curve Finance? Because I mean, it's one of the most like biggest launches. I mean, it's insane how much volume they do, like billions in stablecoin uh, transactions. But they, you know, frankly, the launch of their Curve token definitely did not go as planned. Yeah, so I think um, on the first point there, I think Curve is an awesome project. They've obviously come a long way from what where they started and sort of the grief that they got from the community. You know, they've been fighting an uphill battle for very long. So I have a lot of respect for how big they've gotten. You know, on the sort of aspect of how much value is adding, it definitely feels like it's such a fundamental piece because we are in sort of this recycling stage where everyone's just sort of flipping their own coins with one another. I can't say that that's exponentially valuable beyond that. But um, to your point about the launch, you know, Curve has always been this pseudo-anonymous project, right? Like they've always had this secret, mysterious vibe to them. And while the uh, launch process itself, which for people who aren't familiar, basically an Anon account took their contracts off of GitHub and deployed them publicly for like $8,000 in gas without the team's approval. Like that whole thing just really plays into what people think of Curve as. And I think from a brand legitimacy standpoint, it definitely hindered them a bit. But from a crypto degen standpoint, I think that a lot of people actually really like that. And it's uh, just kind of interesting to recognize that's the the audience in the community that they want to be playing into. Do you think people are actually going to hold the Curve token for a long period of time? Or do you think that it's more of like a flash in the pan? Like To me, it seems like a more foundational product than like one of the food coins we see launched. Yeah, I think uh, the difference there, I don't necessarily envision people holding the Curve token. I envision uh, owners of the pool owning a large portion of tokens. So for example, the Compound pool, I think that Compound has an incentive to hold Curve for the Y pool. Wiron has an incentive to hold those tokens. And to give some context to that, basically you can lock Curve into the DAO, get a multiplier on your rewards, and also vote on which pool should earn the highest rewards. So we're kind of seeing this governance award thing play out where you know, teams are basically holding and acquiring Curve tokens to boost their own stake and sort of milk those rewards as much as possible. And I think that that's sort of the first clear use case to me as to why anyone would want to hold these tokens when rewards are so high. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm definitely there with you, man. I mean, the, the UX is just, it's crazy. It's like a 1980s UX and it does so much volume and uh, people just love it. Mm-hmm. I've definitely come around to it. I think that I was a pretty outspoken um, critic of the UI for a long time, but again, Going back into like what Curve is and the audience they're speaking to, you know, it's like meant to be, this is money, you know, this is not supposed to be sexy. This is, this is crypto, you know, you get what you get and use it to your advantage. So I don't know, coming around to it for sure. Yeah. We're going through so much so quick, Cooper. We're going to, it's going to, we're going to cover everything by the end of this. (laughs) Yeah. Every single yield farming opportunity ever. So Cooper, the other thing is a lot of the news on yield farming comes from people in the space that are anonymous, right? Like you have DGen Spartan, I'm a huge fan, like DevOps, Chainlink guy, like, you know, yourself, you're not anonymous, but how do people wrap their head around that? Like, and how do you trust these people? Because like, I'd love to see a new yield farming play pop up from a random account, but then I'm always asking myself, like, how do I know that this anonymous person didn't create a scam or something like that? Yeah, I think the um, the ethos around auditing needs to become a little bit better. I think that for new projects, it's difficult to get an audit in such a short time frame. You know, luckily, people have been using contracts which have been audited, but I would just love to see people putting slightly more effort into the um, 
you know, we actually did put a lot of time into this. We reviewed our own code, like just slapping a warning thing on the front and saying, Hey, it's unaudited. We're warning you against using this is not enough. You know, people are just going right through that warning message, just YOLOing in every time. Um, I think the standards around just sort of auditing, and if, if you can't get a formal audit, you know, just showing any sort of semblance that this wasn't spun up in an hour, that there was due diligence done by the team, you know, something like that, I think is a good starting point. I also do agree with you that from me as a yield farmer, having a reputable name behind the project definitely gives it a lot of uh, social reputation. Now, for the case of EM, there's a couple of people on that project who I respect and have a really good standing in the community. I think that that was a huge testament as to why it did so well. Now, you look at something like Spaghetti Coin and it's uh, anon accounts and you don't really know who's behind it. And while the DGENs of the world will go and just YOLO in, for someone like me, that was one where I sat on the sidelines because I just wasn't too confident about who was behind it. And if, if shit went wrong, you know, there's no one really to point the finger to, which makes me think that they're probably less uh, motivated to ensure that everything happens properly and stays safe. Yeah, I'm with you there, man. Is there any reason you would prefer an anonymous team to a not anonymous team? It's a good question. And it's one that's sort of... Um, coming up more and more. I think in the in the spirit of sort of these decentralized ecosystem that we live in, you know, a lot of people like to point to legal and sort of the distributed nature of these tokens. Um, I feel like from, you know, teams that are really trying to play into that decentralized nature of crypto, having an anonymous team makes sense. You know, it sort of feeds into this sovereign nature where there's no one to point the finger at, there's no one sort of controlling this project. And we're starting to see it more and more. I think that it really is more of a... Uh, legal narrative thing than a tangible benefit thing. But I definitely can understand why teams are choosing to go this route, especially if we consider that DeFi may be able to scale to billions and trillions of dollars in the coming years here. Yeah, I'm with you, man. It's I guess the thing I, I like anonymous teams as long as I can validate their work and kind of work with them a little bit to make sure that they're legit and aligned and stuff like that. I guess the hard part though is, you know, once these teams actually have to build real products or services around their token beyond yield farming, it's kind of hard to do that as an anonymous team. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what we saw with Curve, right? And like I said, Curve has always been pseudo-anonymous. In the early days, you kind of had to be in the inner circle to know who was actually building it. It's only as of you know, this month, I think that the uh, one of the co-founders, Michael, changed his Twitter bio from CTO of New Cypher to Curve. And like that's something where you know, as the glow up becomes real, I think that people need to sort of put a face behind it to give people confidence of what's going on. So it's really interesting. You know, the anonymous thing has worked on a really grassroots level when there's, you know, lower stakes at stage. But when someone actually goes to the spotlight and to center stage, I think that it's interesting to consider that people are coming out of the shadows and sort of like claiming their fame and giving people confidence that someone working on this uh, cares a lot about it and is willing to reveal themselves for it. Yeah, I'm with you there. I had Michael on the podcast about Curve, and at the time he was leading with that new cipher title, so I was a little confused when we first started off. I was like, "Do I have the right guy or not?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, no, it was it was interesting to to catch up with him. The other thing worth talking about is a lot of the projects got venture capital funding, so things like Compound, some of the larger projects that are, I guess, more flights to safety and are larger, but a lot of the new projects obviously don't have any VC funding and, frankly, don't need it. Do you think that these yield farming projects will need VC funding in the future? Or do you think that it's you know new paradigm, don't really need it? I think they need to have sustainable funding in some way, shape, or form. I don't think it needs to come from venture capitalists, but you need to have a way to be able to bootstrap yourself. I don't really think that a completely fair launch where the team has no tokens, no pre-mine, um, it's difficult to see if that's going to be scalable in the long term. I also would like to state that 
we're kind of in this weird territory where people are saying no VC funding is more of like a flex type thing. But even within crypto, there's still like crypto funds and, you know, just crypto angel investors and they are VCs, you know, they might not have a fund or rebase in Silicon Valley or something like that, but really any major uh, DeFi project is still being backed by someone with a large amount of capital. And yeah, I think that it serves a purpose, but I definitely am curious to figure out how we can sort of mitigate those um, necessity to raise, you know, one to $5 million on a seed round and be able to sort of bootstrap a product and get it to a good place without having all that capital kind of flow in right off the bat. Yeah, that's that's fair. A lot of this comes down to governance. Like if you have a project that won't take outside capital, they're going to have to have some kind of treasury fed by either, you know, issuance or an allocation or fees or something like that. And I feel like having governance with these projects is just frankly so hard because they come on the scene so quickly. It's just mm-hmm. hard to actually get people involved and then vote. What's your take on governance for, you know, the very early stage yield farming projects? Yeah, I think you got to direct it towards what people actually want to govern. You know, right now, that's literally the token distribution and liquidity mining incentives. I think that one problem we saw with governance from a long time ago is there was this far-reaching ambition that governance was going to control every minute aspect of a protocol. And I'm definitely more bullish on teams recognizing that no one cares about governance in the early days and literally just catering catering those discussions to the very small things that uh, a lot of people care about and hopefully trying to incentivize them in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I mean, I saw we saw that a lot with Wi-Fi, which you were involved with early on, right? You were one of the one of the holders there. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think that to your point, uh, basically there was a pool where users who voted on different polls were able to earn um, some rewards of that first thirty thousand Wi-Fi. And yeah, I think that you know, just taking that a step further, governance around something like Wi-Fi, the fact that it was truly fair distribution, it was as altruistic as you could possibly get people felt like they had more control and ownership of that. They felt like they really earned it and they really did control that project. And I think that's a big reason why we saw Wi-Fi and governance get as exciting as it did is because people genuinely cared about the project and uh, felt like they had rights and ownership. Whereas in a lot of these other models, you kind of feel like you're just buying someone else's bags and you know they will always have more control than you do. So Wi-Fi is interesting because after it came out or, or hit the scene, within a week, there was 30 or 35 improvement proposals already. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. And I know you're saying that people are obviously, you know, want their voice heard and, and it's altruistic. And I like that. But do you think that some of this is really just the economic incentives of, hey, we want to make sure this token goes higher? Like, how do you judge the governance from people that actually want to see the project do well versus people that just want the token price to go higher? And to be honest, it might just be the same thing. Yeah, I think that a lot of it is the same. I feel like the reason someone would want to participate in governance is to make a better product so that ultimately the token price does go up in value. You know, we saw a clear intersection though of people trying to um, expand the wire and ecosystem because it had a lot of value and there was actually stuff to be delivered there. So for example, like Y vaults and basically democratizing yield farming, there was no uh, tangible Wi-Fi rewards from that as opposed to something like, you know, the Wi-Fi inflation schedule and sort of the Wi-Fi treasury. So there's definitely a gray line there. I think uh, to answer your original question, everyone is doing governance because they hope that their actions will make the token price go up. And honestly, I think that that's good because we can place more uh, token price appreciation in sounded conversations rather than just pumping it for the sake of a narrative when there's nothing actually backing that. Yeah, that's that's really fair. Do you think that, let's say that Wi-Fi figures out its issuance schedule. I I'm, I'm, haven't looked at it today, but 
I'm not sure where it stands. When I was spending a lot of time on it, it was, you know, the decision on whether to go from 30 to 50 K and then where to allocate that. I think it's still ongoing. I believe it is, but let's say that's figured out. Do you think that people will stick around and continue to govern it? Or is this the most pressing issue when people are going to say, all right, you know, we figured this out. Let's go on to the next one. Like, how do you kind of view engagement? Cause like, I feel like the issuance problem is actually a huge catalyst to get people on, you know, talking about governance. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, governance is relevant so long as there's something important to talk about. You know, in the case of Wi-Fi, yield farming is not going away anytime soon. And being able to sort of incentivize, um, we'll say, successful yield farming with rewards makes a lot of sense for that specific project. I think that a lot of other projects struggle to keep up with governance because they don't have, you know, their narratives don't really tie in directly to yield farming. It's actually just like using yield farming as a buzzword to encourage governance over some random thing on the side here. So like, I think that as long as yield farming stays hot, um, Wiron's going to continue to be probably the most active governance discussion for at least the next couple of months, in my opinion. Hey, guys, I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor, Crypto.com. Crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow. Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange. And to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash crypto Delphi now or click the link in the show notes. Now back to our show. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, you lead with an issue or not even an issue, but an issue like a community finds, they rally around that, solve the issue. And then, hey, you're now you have a you know highly engaged community. It's, it's pretty genius. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, from my perspective with, with Wi-Fi and with Wire and the fact that there was so much community interest in this thing and the fact that it all happened completely altruistically you know no one on that forum is getting paid to participate in governance there might have been rewards in the early days but everything since like the first week has just been completely everyone on their own uh, i really like this quote that the best way to build an engaged community is to make your early adopters rich and i think that's exactly what happened with wi-fi where these people who are farming in the first two weeks ended up accumulating so much in rewards that as token price keeps going up they're literally like diehard you know wi-fi loyalists and is something that I hope will, will continue if Wi-Fi price continues to drop. But from what I'm seeing, I was talking to someone yesterday and they said Wi-Fi is the most interesting asset I've seen in crypto in five years. And I think like when we look at kind of the generalized ERC-20 token trend with pre-mines and all this stuff going on, and then you look at sort of the, the inceptions of Bitcoin and sort of what got people excited about that, like Wi-Fi really does feel like the first token that sort of t- took this ethos of like truly decentralized cryptocurrency sovereignty and put that into a project that people can rally behind. I totally agree. Do you think that the creation of Wi-Fi had all of these aspects in mind? Like, let's make sure the token distribution is extremely fair. Let's make sure we don't have VCs. Or do you think it's kind of just like, it just happened? It just happened. I mean, talking to Andre, I think that um, whether or not he was just being naive or just sort of being humble about it, I don't think that he expected this to be nearly as popular as it did. I think that he wanted to kind of roll this out um, behind closed doors, you know, very quietly and sort of figure out what worked. You know, I think that to my earlier point, the reason why I think governance is so important is because assumptions about liquidity mining and about token distribution are changing by the minute. You know, any DeFi team distributing a token, they have assumptions about their token price or sort of who's going to use it. And in these markets, we have no way to control that. So I think, you know, specifically in the case of Wi-Fi, none of this could have been accounted for. I think that Andre was just running one of his testing prod experiments. And once it started taking off, there had to be a lot of uh, adjustments being made to sort of account for this unprecedented demand that I don't think anyone saw coming. 
Yeah, no, that's that's fair, man. It, it is hard. Is there anything about Wi-Fi that you didn't like? I think uh, how quickly people were able to secure really, really big allocations was not something that I was a huge fan of. You know, this idea that basically the entirety of the token supply gets distributed in two weeks is sort of a bit unfair to anyone who's not like literally living and breathing DeFi every day. I think that it was acceptable for this project given sort of the way it was launched, but I'm definitely um, not a huge fan of like someone who gets in an hour before you gets 10,000% higher return because they were literally not sleeping to try and earn higher returns on DeFi. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you there, man. And how do you think through the initial token generation events for a lot of these things? Like they don't actually have to do ICOs anymore. Do you think that ICOs are just straight up dead because now people could just do kind of yield farming to distribute? I think that if there's a way to capture that upside as the team, the one thing I do like about ICOs and about just sort of any sort of um, sale event is that the team can sort of get bootstrapped a little bit. You know, it's unclear whether or not we found a model to do that effectively without token price just going to a million dollars on the first 60 seconds. But um, definitely feel like this fair distribution, yield farming, liquidity mining narrative makes more sense in terms of being able to find rational price discovery if it's done in a way such that not such a small amount of token supply is distributed right off the bat. So to add some quick clarity to that, you know, with um, basically all of these governance tokens, right? In the first week, we have like 0.5% of the circulating of the total supply in circulation. And what ends up happening is that the circulating market cap looks attractive from a crypto investor standpoint, but as many people are calling it, the fully diluted market cap is like billions and billions of dollars. And it's just really, really backwards. So trying to figure out that middle ground where we can be distributing tokens a little bit more rationally. And the one thing that I liked about ICOs was that to some degree, you know, you were almost more or less just putting a lot of tokens in circulation. And that means the price discovery felt a little bit more safe or sane than what we're seeing today. Cooper, you know your stuff, man. I'm literally running out of questions on the fly because you're just giving us too much alpha too quick. (laughs) The other thing, just from a macro perspective, I want to think about, I love Ethereum, but I'm a huge believer that Ethereum's gas fees are boxing out users and uh, projects. And I think people Mm -hmm. are going to start to use other layer ones. I don't know if it's going to be Solana or Nier. I don't know which one it's going to be. But what's your take on DeFi and yield farming happening on other chains? Yeah, so I think actually taking a step back from DeFi and yield farming, um, one thing that people don't talk about a lot is the other use cases of Ethereum. So specifically like DAOs and NFTs, uh, there's a lot of community members that are currently rallying around layer two on Ethereum, basically that are just pissed at the fact that DeFi has just completely clogged up Ethereum and rightfully so. So I actually think that we're starting to see this um, almost like a segmentation where different layer two solutions are going to cater to different needs. So for example, like XDAI is something that a lot of DAOs are considering now. And then when we look at the financial use cases, I think that there's a lot to be uh, earned or there's a lot to be taken from something like Serum and a Solana-based Dex, but it's still unclear to me if that composability can stay the same. You know, I was having a conversation yesterday that I'm scared to migrate to another chain if I can't use all of the same tools and DeFi applications today on Ethereum as easily as I could on another chain. And until we sort of see those vibrant ecosystems emerge somewhere else, I'm uh, having a tough time seeing how that actually comes to fruition, although I do think it will in the long term. So if let's say that you have another layer one, right? And let's say that it obviously doesn't take as long to develop the tooling because Ethereum already did it. So the other layer ones know what they need, right? They know they need wallets and dev tools and documentation and support and funding. Like, Let's say all the primitives are kind of built out another layer one. And I know that's a huge mental jump here. Do you think that 
it would happen without the Ethereum community support? Like, do you think that that can happen and, and they create, create and cultivate their own communities? Or do you think that you literally need part of the Ethereum community to move over to actually make it successful on another layer one? I think it's more of the latter. You know, a lot of people don't talk as much about Ethereum's culture. And one of the reasons I think that DeFi has gotten so successful is because there really is this family feel to it. You know, going to a lot of Ethereum events this past year before uh, Corona kind of kicked in, you know, you would see these people at different places around the world in person, hanging out and, you know, just building together as a collective family is something that you can't really buy. And I'm kind of um, unsure that someone can just sort of incubate that community and sort of this this really this family nature of Ethereum that it has without a, a lot of long time and effort and development. And like I said, you just can't buy it. You simply can't buy that. And it's something that a lot of layer ones are going to have to really fight for and do it organically if they want to compete. Cooper, are you scared about Ethereum maximalism? Because frankly, I am, right? Like, I mean, it scares the hell out of yeah. me. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm definitely not a, I don't think that Ethereum is the end all be all of all time. I think that there's a lot of awesome people in the space and I've truly found a lot of amazing friends in it. But I do not like this sort of herd mentality of it's us versus them. You know, any project that's working in crypto is all working towards the same common goal. I'm happy to empower and promote anyone that's working hard and for the right reasons. You know, there's a fine line between um, Ethereum maximalists being Ethereum maximalists because there's scam coins out there. Like people like, you know, just to use a common term, like someone like Tron just trying to steal that narrative. But I don't think that that same sentiment holds true where like someone, a project like Solana is backed by an incredible team. They all have great motivations. and people shitting on Solana just because of the fact they're trying to solve one of Ethereum's biggest pain points is not a the proper mental model, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's fair. And, and full disclosure, I own both Ethereum and Solana. Just I have to be transparent about all that stuff. But the other thing I try and think about, though, is let's say you have an Ethereum application that is suffering from high gas fees and, and doesn't work, right? Let's say, for example, you move that to Solana, right? So the product could be perfected where you get high throughput and really low fees, but the supply side is tough because what assets are you going to supply to combat on Solana? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's tough. Like, you have that dichotomy between fixing the product but losing the liquidity. Yeah, and uh, taking that a step further, I think that you know the on the hurdles for people in crypto are actually super important. So, if I have to make another wallet and transfer my assets to another wallet to use something on Solana, I'm pretty much tapping out from stage one. You know, you think about that from. Uh, a user perspective, and you think about that from a liquidity provider perspective, the fact that we can use Ethereum and sort of port assets around to hundreds of applications from one central place or one wallet is so huge. And I think until someone figures out how to allow those same things to happen on a different layer one, where you don't have to literally start a new existence on a new chain, um, it's going to be kind of an interesting learning curve or hurdle that people have to overcome. I'm with you there. And Cooper, you spent a lot of time talking with devs and just vibing with people in space that are actually really building, right? I mean, you're like on mm -hmm. the ground. Do you think the perception of developers just dealing with ETH fees is like misconstrued? Because from my opinion, I think a lot of developers are actually kind of upset about it. But I feel like when I look at Twitter, most people are just like, oh, okay, like they're going to stay forever. Like, you know, we'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, um, I won't be naive to think that these devs are going through a lot when it comes to deploying contracts and sort of the sustainability cost of running a successful DeFi application. I think that there's no clear alternative right now. And a lot of people are very scared to make that leap and really just risk their reputation going somewhere else. You know, like I said, Ethereum is very tight knit. And um, a lot of times those who leave Ethereum to go somewhere else are often shaded by their peers. And I think that that's very dangerous. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can sort of figure this out on Ethereum. You know, there's a lot of layer two projects that are trying really, really hard to help with this. But um, it's just really interesting to recognize that it is sort of this mental social reputation thing that when someone goes from Ethereum to a different layer one, as opposed to using Ethereum in a layer two solution, there's very different uh, conversations and feedback that comes from that. Do you think that, and I know this is a really technical answer because it's really hard with figuring out the data availability and how composability works on layer twos and stuff like that. But I guess just directionally, do you think that layer twos will be here in time to fix these issues? I think that specific layer twos will be here to to fix their specific niches. So like if someone's using optimistic rollups to build a on layer two, I'm hopeful that everyone using optimistic rollups can talk to one another. And then I'm also hopeful that everyone that's using XDI can talk to one another. What I'm less convinced about is that um, projects on XDI's layer two will be able to talk to someone that's using optimistic rollups. And so we sort of have to figure out how that conversation happens. Yeah, it's, it's definitely unclear. I think to your point about will it come and happen in time, ETH2 is not going to be here for at least another year to year and a half. When I say ETH2, I mean like phase two where you can actually use smart contracts and have the, t- the scalability that we're talking about. So in the short term, you know, I think that this is really layer two projects time to make it or break it. If they can't figure it out in the next three to six months, then yeah, then Ethereum is going to be screwed until layer two and possibly forever. I'm, I'm with you, man. I mean, I don't think people should think of ETH2 as a saving grace. I think it's really layer twos on ETH versus competing layer ones. Absolutely. And it's yeah, interesting it- too, because uh, a lot of the layer ones that we're seeing now are really bridging back over to Ethereum. So you can almost argue that like, in some sense, you know, this layer two versus layer one discussion is sort of getting mended into the same bucket where everyone's tapping into Ethereum and sort of just trying to do what they can to allow those use cases to proliferate uh, somehow on chain, you know, while ultimately focused on that scalability that makes layer two and layer one solutions viable. Cooper, not to harp on this again, but I'm loving your answers here. You know, a lot of people are comparing Ethereum to other layer ones and just saying, oh, if these apps were on another layer one, it would be awesome. But there's got to be issues that people would run into on other layer ones, just as we hit unknown issues with Ethereum, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know I keep coming back to this, but just that, what are those early days of you using one of these layer ones look like? Like when I go out of my way and I have to make a new wallet and deposit assets or migrate them cross chain, you know, there's a lot of pain points that I think people underestimate and they like to point to, hey, it's going to be so fast and so cheap that it's awesome. But sort of getting someone to take their identity and sort of their existence on Ethereum and going somewhere else, that's going to be a very tough conversation. And I would love to see more teams focused on that and really emphasizing the fact that you're not uh, leaving Ethereum. You know, you're just happening to use the benefits that another chain offers while still being able to access all the things you love so much about Ethereum. I love that, man. And let's talk, um, let's go, let's zoom in again. Let's talk about new projects. Is there anything that's on your radar from a yield farm perspective that's um, shiny and new. And I hate that, you know, if I take a week to release this episode, it might be gone by then. <laughs> so it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, probably by the time this episode drops, EM3 will have started, which is kind of interesting just from a coordination standpoint. I'm fascinated to see whether or not it gets the same amount of attention it did before. We're going to see this huge wave of new DeFi projects coming on. And one thing I think is really important to address is. For a long time, DeFi projects were building, they were shipping, they were being used for years on end, and then they introduced the token. And that mental model of introducing a token after product market fit is one that I really loved about DeFi. We're going to enter into this territory where new products are launching with tokens on day one and using those tokens to incentivize usage. 
And I think it's going to really cloud sort of the quality of DeFi projects and really just overinflate the legitimacy of what's happening in this sector, which was honestly a huge issue with 2017 ICOs and why they started getting such a terrible rep so fast. Yeah, that's interesting, man. I mean, it's crazy because tokens came back so quickly, right? Like people hated mm-hmm. tokens for years and now everybody wants one. Yeah, even teams that uh, you know were complete anti-tokens, we would never do it. It's getting to the point where if you don't have a token, you're almost like, well, what the hell are you doing? And people are just like looking at your project <laughs> and be like, come on. Like, but I actually think it's dangerous, right? Because now people are opting into tokens because it's the right thing to do market sentiment wise, when again, it might not be the best thing for the project. And people are just trying to slot it in somewhere to slot it in rather than actually building a system uh, around a token that's inherently necessary and adds to the value capture of that ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, man. I guess going back to the ICO thing, the crazy thing was people, I mean, had a sunk cost of capital. They would buy Ethereum, send it, and receive a token. In this case, people are using the assets they already own. They don't have to sell it to get a new asset. So I guess it is safer in that respect, but I do feel like they are investing. I mean, I don't know. People are yield farming, I think, just as crazily as they kind of invested in ICOs at the end of the day. If not crazier, man. I mean, to your point exactly, you don't have any sunk costs when you're doing this. You know, God forbid there's any smart contract risk there, but in the case of something like Yam, you know, I could put all my DeFi tokens in there and get a shit ton of Yam and then just pull it back out. You know, I never lost anything and just made a ton of Yam tokens. So it's a weird paradigm. (laughs) It is, man. And the other thing about yield farming is everyone assumes somebody else is going to audit these public contracts because there's that overlying thesis of, hey, this is out in the open. Anybody can audit it. But like, who exactly is auditing it? Like, is it a team member? Is it, you know, Trail of Bits? Like, who looks at it? I think it's just, um, you know, community members who care about security, quite frankly, and they're far and few. I think that we've seen constantly on Twitter that there's a lack of professional auditing services right now, and they're getting booked up for months in advance that for an early stage team that wants to ship something fast, you literally don't have a viable solution to go to. So now I think that we're going to start seeing this sort of this role or this field of players of people who are just technically savvy, you know, they know solidity, they've worked in it well, and they can literally become just a freelance auditor to the point where they don't have to build anything. They just have to look at the code and double check it. And we're seeing people like Sam CZ just be like this rock star in the space because uh, people know that he, if he's looked at the contracts, they can like literally trust it with all of their money. And they feel like that's like the seal of God approval. And I'm really hoping that we can have more, more people on his kind of level coming in and, spending more of their time caring about security as we really, really need it. Yeah, I totally agree. We, we can't have a scalable, as much as I like him, we can't have a scalable uh, space of relying on a few people. Do, do you think, though, that we'll get to a point where, I mean, a lot of people are reusing code from past projects that have been heavily audited. Do you think that that's kind of a viable way forward? Or do you think that that represents a pretty systematic risk of if there's an issue there to begin with, then the whole space is kind of screwed? Yeah, I think that it's a right mental model, right? I think that if we can have someone looking at the changes that happen to those contracts and really dialing in on those, it's a good um, stopgap for right now. Um, I'm definitely cautious of what we're giving to as sort of like completely secure contracts. You know, I don't want to just sort of assume that anything that had a lot of money going through it makes it secure. I think that we really do need more time to see if these base lever protocols are, base level contracts, I should say, are definitely uh, as secure as everyone thinks they are. Yeah, I'm with you there, Matt. It's it's interesting for sure. I'm trying to think what we didn't cover, man. We've we've got through a lot. Yeah, I have a an interesting topic that I've been thinking about a lot. You know, when we think about the traditional financial world and we talk about how there was 
all these building blocks and house of cards and all this stuff from 2008, I'm really concerned that we're getting to a similar state in DeFi where we're stacking a lot of risk on top of one another. We're going deeper and deeper with assets that we're using in this ecosystem. And it's really, no one's really talking about how, uh, how high we're stacking this stack of cards right now. You know, luckily we have not seen anything catastrophic happen, but um, if something goes bad on one of these very core base layer products, like a lot of DeFi could disrupt very, very quickly. And it's something that we need to be a lot more cautious of moving forward, especially if this keeps scaling. That's a really good point, man. I guess the funny comparison here is like in 2008, in that crisis, we all trusted brand name banks. Meanwhile, they all did crazy things behind the scenes. In DeFi, mm-hmm. we're seeing the crazy things, but we can all audit it in real time. So it's kind of like the reverse dynamic where in crypto, we don't have the brands of like a JP Morgan Chase or, or something like that launching a derivatives contract. But in reality, we can audit it. So it's the reverse, but it's just as risky. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think where I'm starting to see this be kind of like risky is the fact that we're putting capital we're just, you know, cycling capital so much, like to use Wiren as an example on their delegated vaults, like we're seeing you deposit a token somewhere, you get a liquidity position, you deposit that liquidity position somewhere else that gives you a yield earning position there. Then you deposit that somewhere else to do yield farming and you deposit that into a liquidity pool to get more tokens. And like that thought pattern of just like continually going one step deeper down the rabbit hole, like adding a wrapper each and every time is something that we've become a little bit too comfortable with in my opinion. And Granted, we haven't seen any issues yet, but I feel like we're uh, we're just refactoring things so much. It's like, what, wh- where does it end? You know, what is the what is the point where we can say that this is not actually adding value? It's just sort of refactoring this token a million times over for no tangible benefit. Yeah, I mean, the thing that scares the hell out of me is basically what you're bringing up is every step you add is like an exponential increase in the amount of risk because you have to multiply the risk of each, that each project has together, and the risk is multifaceted: smart contract risk, team risk. It's just so much there. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are turning to Nexus Mutual as like a hot topic in the space right now, because this is what they're trying to help address is smart contract risk and insurance against that. But what I am really worried about is the fact that Nexus Mutual is one small project. The amount of capital they have in there would be insignificant if a paramount of a huge event happened. And I'm just not convinced that we can turn and just point to Nexus Mutual to be like, okay, we're covered in the event of travesty because we're really not. And I think that if that were to happen, um, Nexus would probably get exposed by like how little they could cover relative to the amount of capital that theoretically could be on the line. Yeah, insurance is a is an interesting play, especially because you know, like you said, you need the coverage. But on the other side of things, a smart contract is once insurance is forever. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting to kind of think about. But yeah, I mean, it's. I guess the only thing that would be interesting though is when we see yield farming actually reach the masses. You know, like I don't. I don't know if we can get there the way it is right now, though. I, I'm I'm actually kind of doubtful because I'm just not seeing the shiny UXs and and the mentality for people outside of crypto to get involved beyond just the token rewards. And to be honest, maybe the token rewards are enough money and incentive to attract people in and then grab them in. I mean, that could also be the play. Yeah. When I think about mass adoption, I actually take a step back from DeFi. And I think um, Jesse Walden calls it the ownership economy, but basically distributing tokens to your most value-added users. I think when we look at that from less of a financial incentive and more of a, hey, you have rights over this protocol, you get to use this product, you get to capture the upside of that. When we start to abstract those primitives to um, non-DeFi audiences, so for example, something like Audius might be a good example. We're seeing like Rarible with their NFT marketplace. You know, those things excite me. And I think if we can figure out a way to 
allow most value-added users to sort of participate in these economies with very little capital risk. Like they can just come in and use a product, use it well, and then get upside. Like that, that really excites me. And it's something that I could definitely see getting pretty big. And I mean, even if you are getting rewards like that, like let's say yield farming, not within DeFi, you're still earning a token for that project, whatever it might be. And you could always exit that position for another crypto and, and eventually get cash at the end of the end of the day. Yeah, I think uh, designing that system is really important there. So for example, with synthetic staking, when you stake your synthetics and you mint SUSD, you get synthetics inflation, but that's vested for a year. You know, I think that if teams do not uh, design systems so that that liquidation can't can't happen, the moment that you get a reward, you're going to be kind of screwed. And we kind of saw this with Rari and their token is people just dumping it right away. But um, I'm optimistic. There's a way to do liquidity mining so that people are sticking around. And if you design a strong enough economy, I think that there's an argument to be made that people would be willing to keep that token because they're confident in the long-term health of that project over getting a short-term you know, a couple hundred bucks here or there. That's a, that's a good point. And Cooper, I don't want to talk price targets because it doesn't really excite me. I'd rather focus on the, the projects themselves. But how far do we get before we see kind of like a potential bubble pop? And the only reason I say, I say this from a place of, I think liquidity, you know, I think yield farming DeFi Web3 will be multi-hundred billion dollar opportunity, if not more. But I do think mm-hmm. that it will be a roller coaster to get there. So it's not really worth timing it. But I think it's getting obvious that we're eventually going to get to a spot where we do have a pretty significant pullback at some point. Yeah, it's funny. I posted that uh, classic market chart on Twitter about like the cycles and the different um, sentiments behind them. And I personally said that we were close to the top there, but everyone else that commented said that we were like still super, super early. So I think oh, it's kind of that's, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's actually a good signal. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, it's definitely just interesting. Um, people point out all the time when you look at the top 50 cryptos today, you know, we see like Bcash, we see IOTA, we see these kind of projects still boasting like multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar market caps. And I do like this thought process that uh, in six months from now, the top 20 on, on coin market cap will be like 50% more DeFi tokens. You know, we're starting to see that now with like Aave creeping up, Synthetics creeping up, Kyber creeping up, stuff like that. So um I don't know. When we just take a step back from yield farming, and we look at the token economies that these DeFi projects are building around their token, they're exponentially stronger than what we're seeing in the top 20 today. And if we can sort of lean into value-added token economies that have a lot of effort put into them over just like a narrative play of buying uh, Bcash because it's, you know, or Litecoin because it's Bitcoin Silver or something like that, I think that's healthy and kind of argues that there is still um, at least a decent amount of upside before we reach a, a top where we sort of have to reconsider things. Yeah, that, that's fair, man. It It's kind of a fun dichotomy, though, that goes back to our conversation when we opened the pod is that, to be honest, I thought when we got to the point where the applications built on a layer one were the focus, that the competing layer ones would die off. Like That, that was kind of like one of my longstanding viewpoints. But the reality is that people are now looking to other layer ones given each transaction fee, so they're still getting propped up regardless. I mean, obviously, like Bcash and, and stuff like that really aren't in this conversation, but it just is a weird kind of mix, you know? Yeah, and it is interesting to think about this layer one conversation. There's definitely uh, very different quality standards of those layer ones. You know, the ones that were around from 2017 are inherently and vastly different from the layer ones like Solana and Near that are launching today. And I'm definitely very curious to see now that these things are live and, you know, hopefully as, as uh, crypto continues to do well, I'm like, I'm, I'm super interested to see who can come and eat Ethereum's lunch. You know, I would be, one of the first people to recognize if there's like tangible value out and tangible ecosystems building somewhere else. And I would 
gladly write about that, gladly participate in those discussions. You know, I'm not grounded in Ethereum forever. And I think that to me, it's really just a matter of who can prove their worth and who can show me that people are building there when they're not just getting paid to do so. That was just a huge issue to me in terms of why, at least in the short term, why a lot of teams are going off of Ethereum because they're getting bankrolled to do so. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. The the hard part is, or the interesting part is, in the past, people went to another layer one, basically, in my opinion, to get a check. Like, you yep. know, everyone went to EOS and EOS has nothing built on it, right? But that's because they had so much money. But now people are altruistically leaving because they actually want the project they're building to work. You know, so it's a totally different kind of work uh, game plan. What are you seeing on that front? I'd love to sort of, you know, just get a little bit more granular on that. And if there's no good answer for that, that's totally fine. But I'm super, super curious to hear more about teams that are strong teams building elsewhere and sort of like some of their motivations behind that. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, man. And to be honest, I wish I had a definitive answer on, you know, this, this, and this project, but I don't think we're there yet because like you pointed out, it's just such a social risk to move and then have to come back that a project would probably die if it doesn't work out. So I think a lot of projects, in my opinion, are exploring alternatives, but I don't think any of them are going to come out and say it unless they see kind of a, a giant well move over of a project to another to another layer one. Yeah, and I'd say on my end, um, some that come to mind, obviously Serum is one that's being talked about a lot in sort of the financial sector of things. There's a prediction market called Flux, which is building on near protocol and yeah, to your point, there's people doing it. You know, it's kind of hard to find right now, and they're being very strategic about the way they communicate it. But I really love the fact that there are teams that are very talented and who I can recognize are in it for the right reasons building elsewhere. Because I think that that's drastically different from what we saw before, where it was just like iffy teams kind of like building elsewhere and touting it up like they're going to be this poster child for a project. When in reality, you know, there wasn't even a strong argument to be made that they could even make it in the first place, regardless of whether or not they got funding. Yeah, no, that's totally true, man. It's funny. And I guess um, last questions for you, man. I'm just trying to think through what we should wrap up with here. I guess what's um, what's most at heart for DeFi rate going forward? Like, you know, where do you see yourself moving in the space kind of in the next five or 10 years? Five or 10 years, man. Shit, that's a long time frame. I think you know, the next, yeah, you know, like, you're, you're totally right. Let's, let's, let's put that back a lot. Let's go five months. <laughs> yeah, so I really like uh, the notion of reputable media outlets participating in protocol governance. So I wrote this piece called Protocol Politicians and basically someone like DeFi Rate being able to be a value-added actor in a lot of different DeFi protocols. Um, you know, in the coming months, we're going to see these media outlets be more reputable sources for information. So when we think about token lists and basically how do you know what DeFi tokens are reputable? How do you know which DeFi tokens deserve to go on the Uniswap front end? Uh, I'm confident that outlets like DeFi Rate will play a key role in giving projects seal of approval. And I think that's a big step forward and a huge opportunity for projects like DeFi Rate to really take their knowledge from just like a um, secondary piece of the puzzle that people turn to offhand and become more of like a critical layer of infrastructure within the DeFi ecosystem itself. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And Cooper... We went through so much so quick, man. I love having just casual crash course combos. Probably name the episode that, to be honest. But just so that people could make sure that they're following you and where can they follow you on Twitter? And then I guess share DeFi rate as well. And I know you also write for Defiant, which is great. Yeah. So um, at Twitter, at Koopa Troopa, three O's. Um, DeFi rate at DeFi rate, Defiant at Defiant News. Yeah, I'd say. Um, Definitely follow me on Twitter. It's something that I'm trying to be a lot more active in as of late. You know, I think that if you're really into DeFi and you're trying to stay up on what's going on, there's literally no better place than Twitter. I'd argue it's actually probably better than the news outlets themselves because of how fast you can get 
Alpha. So um, yeah, definitely stay with me on there. And if you're looking for any good uh, music, you know, Tom and I are both admins of Crypto EDM's Jam Telegram group. So I would love to get anyone involved that sort of wants to take a step back from this whole yield craze and just share some good music with one another. <laughs> man, I love that we have that group together, man. I love uh, checking out some new EDM songs. And it's crazy how much overlap there is with house music and crypto. Yeah, man. And it's really important to just have these other outlets for us to be able to hang out on sort of a social level beyond just money only. Um, I really respect the friends I made in this space. And I think if I was just uh, just in it for the money, I would definitely not be here as actively as I am. So I'm very thankful for people such as yourself that we can be friends on social level beyond what else is going on in the space. Goes both ways, brother. I love that. Well, Cooper, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on today, man. Thanks for having me, man. Looking forward to seeing this live. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.